I am so, I, I've been so wanting to talk to you a little bit about Corona and this COVID moment and to pick your brain on it a little bit. Do you mind if I uh, rat-a-tat-tat you with probably the same questions all of your sure. friends and family probably have? Absolutely. So, so what has Corona and COVID looked like at Stanford and here in Northern California? Has it been meaningfully different than what we're hearing about in New York and other places? Well, it's been different in that we did not have the massive surge in patients that so tragically has occurred in New York. We prepared for a surge. We opened our new hospital, the new Stanford Hospital in November of last year, but our original hospital is still here. In early March, we began the preparations for what might've been up to 175, 200 patients needing ICU care. We began that, those preparations by bringing back online nursing units that we had closed when we opened the new hospital. We closed them, but they were still there. We still had equipment and we made them ready because we thought that we would see a massive surge in patients. That didn't occur. We didn't see a large surge. We did see an increase in patients. We never overwhelmed the delivery system, fortunately. So we've been able to deliver outstanding care to every patient who's come here to be treated. I think the reason that we didn't experience the type of surge that New York has experienced is that we went to shelter in place here very early. And that's to the credit of our local governmental officials and state officials that put into place the shelter in place restrictions um, at a time when many across the country were still skeptical about doing that. That coupled with the fact that you know, we don't have the same sort of mass transit systems that New York and the East Coast uh, uh, cities have that may have also contributed to reducing the spread of the virus and that uh, people were not on subways every day together. It's going to take epidemiologists several years to sort through why it is that thus far we've been able to contain things better in California than many other states. But right now, that's clearly the case, and I think we're all fortunate because of it. Um, did, uh, and this may sound like a silly or under-informed question, but did sunshine and warm weather have anything to do with, with different results? It's hard to know. Uh, we're seeing uh, COVID-19 and the SARS-CoV-2 virus in warm climates as well. Uh, that's been publicized. There, there are cases of COVID-19 in Australia, for example, were back in uh, February and March as well. It's hard to know whether or not, as we move towards more summer months across the United States, is that going to lower the spread of the virus? For some coronaviruses, they do tend to have a seasonality. It's not clear if this particular coronavirus is going to behave in the same way. That's one of the many things that we simply don't have an answer to today about the virus. Interesting. What about um, uh, particular drugs or particular kinds of treatment? Was there anything novel or particularly effective that you guys used here that, uh, that, that helped? We've been a, we participated in a number of clinical trials. Uh, the remdesivir trials that you've read about, this is the, the drug made by Gilead that uh, is undergoing several national trials right now. We're also bringing early stage trials to the benefit of our patients. Still, as you know, there is not uh, a, a therapy that has been shown 
objectively uh, to really be effective in this virus. There are a number of therapies that in the early stages of the evaluation seem promising, but there's a lot more work needed to be done in therapeutics. And of course, ultimately, we, we need to develop a vaccine. And that work is underway here and at many other places as well. And so when we, when many of us hear a vaccine is going to take 18 months, our heart drops, not only because we know that people may die or that people may become injured, but because I think we've gotten used to things happening faster. And so um, I think if I'm candid, I think there's a little bit of disbelief uh, probably within people when they keep hearing 18 months. It sounds a little bit like your parents telling you a worst case scenario because they want you to study now. Is it really true that it's going to take 18 months um, to do it? Or, um, in fact, is there an opportunity to fast track this? Well, people are certainly trying to fast track the development of a vaccine. I have to say, all things considered, yes, I do think it's going to take 18 months. I'd love to be wrong about that, uh, as well, all of us would love to be wrong about uh, the prediction of it taking that length of time. There are just lots of steps involved in vaccine development, and although there are some early stage trials going on now with vaccines, those are mostly at the so-called phase one level, that's establishing that the vaccine is safe, but then showing that it's effective and then improving it based upon uh, the efficacy, efficacy studies. Those are all steps that have to be followed before a vaccine is rolled out broadly to millions of people. Now, along the way, of course, um, there, there could be the development of a vaccine or of, of new antivirals that demonstrably improve our, uh, either our ability to prevent infection or our ability to treat early stage infection. So there'll continue to be that emphasis, but realistically, I do think it's probably 18 months away before where a vaccine is developed and introduced broadly. As a physician, what has surprised you the most uh, about this? And I mean that in any dimension you want. I'm very purposely making it an open-ended question. I asked it of an emergency room physician in the Bronx. I asked it of some um, uh, nurses in Chicago. I've asked it of a variety of medical professionals. But what has surprised you the most about, uh, about the virus and, and about the moment and everything else? Well, this is a really bad virus. Uh, it uh, has a relatively long incubation period, up to two weeks. It makes people ill. For many people, that illness is, is similar to other types of upper respiratory illnesses. But for some, and in an unpredictable way oftentimes, that illness is quite severe. And the fact that it has a long incubation period that we do have evidence it's transmissible even before it makes people really ill. That's what has led to this virus spreading as rapidly as it has. You know, in this morning's New York Times, there was coverage of what, we, what appears to be the case in Santa Clara County, that there were two deaths dating way back to February over 70 days ago, which now seems like eternity, that the coroner now has said were due to COVID-19. The fact that in that relatively short period of time, our entire country 
is undergoing some form of shelter in place and social distancing. The fact that there has been that rapid of spread within the United States illustrates what a dangerous virus this is. You know, in comparing it to uh, its neighbor, the, the SARS virus, the SARS virus caused more caused greater illness in the people it infected and caused people to become quite ill quickly so that they were in the hospital, they weren't circulating in the community. And that may have been one reasons that one of the reasons that the SARS virus itself did not spread widely. Uh, and we're still not quite sure why SARS as an epidemic when it occurred back in 2002, 2003, why it went away. We certainly didn't do a lot of public health things to contain it. I mean, some things were done, but one of the differences may have been that it made more people, that the people who became infected with SARS were more ill, were not transmitting it in the community as commonly, and therefore the virus could be better contained than SARS-CoV-2. Interesting. How do you, you know, you've heard, or I've heard Bill Gates and others say that they think this is the first of what could be a series of, of more frequent pandemics. Do you believe that too? And, and, and how severe do you think they could be and how frequent could they be? Well, I have to really ad admire Bill Gates and, and, and respect uh, his, his thought process throughout uh, the discussion of pandemics. As you're aware, he gave a TED Talk, what now, five years ago, that quite accurately predicted exactly what we're going through today. Yes, I think we're going to see more viruses come from animals and pass into humans. Uh, and I think the just the SARS-CoV-2 virus is going to be with us for a while uh, until we get an effective vaccine uh, because it is so highly transmissible and because many people who are subclinically infected or have only mild manifestations of disease are still in the social environment and transmit it from one person to the next. That then brings up the next series of questions of what do we need to know and what do we need to do to move beyond the shelter in place and social distancing we have today? And I think there's several components to that. First is we need to have rapid and widely available testing for the virus. Uh, we're also going to need to implement epidemiological measures like frequent checking of the temperature. And at the first appearance of any signs or symptoms of an infection, we're gonna, be, we're gonna need to be able to do a screening test to identify whether or not a person has the virus. And if they are, if they do have the virus, they're gonna need to be quarantined and their contacts are gonna be, need to be traced quickly and accurately. In addition to those measures, we're going to need to know the presence of an antibody response within the society. An antibody response indicates that a person has either been exposed to or infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And we and other institutions are involved in now screening tests to see how prevalent an antibody response is among people in our community, and then ultimately we need to spread that testing, broadly speaking. You know, there is the notion of, well, how many people need to have an antibody response? And then just the presence of an antibody response doesn't in and of itself mean that those antibodies prevent an infection. That'll involve a second 
group of studies. But once we know who has an antibody response and who in whom those that antibody response can prevent infection, then we can start looking at concepts such as herd immunity. When do we have enough people immune to the infection in the society that the virus itself won't be able to, uh, to cause the spread of, of an epidemic? We're still a long way away from that point, but those that's the type of information we're going to need to gather and monitor as we consider decisions like when we can we return to work, when can we relax some of the social distancing that's in in, in effect today. Well, what do you, if you had to estimate, what are you telling your kids, Lloyd? What, what's your expectation of when we will re-enter the public square um, in meaningful numbers? I, and I know there are lots of variables and I know whatever answer you think about today will evolve as more data comes in the days, weeks, months ahead. But what's your expectation now? When do you expect someone like me will be back in the office or in a park or, or at an NFL game? It's a great question. I mean, Carlos, I, I wouldn't even want to hazard uh, a guess right now because it would be purely a guess. I do think the fact that the incidence of new cases in the Bay Area appears to be falling, that's the first thing that has to happen. It needs to fall significantly more than, than it has thus far. And then we need to have the type of rapid screening tests that I talked about, you know, the ability, Governor Newsom spoke about, we may have to all get used to when we do start being able to go back to restaurants, we may have to all get used to someone with an infrared thermometer checking us as we walk in the door. It's gonna be that level of screening that's needed in order to safely uh, permit people to return to environments where we're back together again and not have a resurgence of infections that could lead to that surge in patients that we would have had, had our government not implemented the measures that they did and very fortunate that they did. And let me see if I can pin you down though, only because I know people will want your, your, your best thought of the moment. Does this, does this feel more to you like May, June or July, if you had to, if you had to estimate? Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to, um, to give an estimate right now and have people misled. We're in constant communication with the governor's office, with the health commissioners in uh, Santa Clara County and the surrounding counties, sharing with them as much information we can about the patients we're seeing here today. Uh, I know that they're considering a variety of different options, but I don't wanna second guess their decisions because they're the ones ultimately that will be on the line to make the decisions that are weighing the economic effects of this uh, shelter in place environment with the public health effects of coming out of shelter in place too soon and then having a surge in patients that could be devastating. Yeah, understood, totally understood. Um, um, uh, last couple of questions uh, uh, for me as you, as you think about this. How if, how if at all, in what meaningful ways, if any, do you think your hospital and the practice of medicine as you've known it for all these years will change as a result of this? Or is that too big a burden to put on, on this difficult moment? And, and indeed, while it will change some things, it won't change anything you know, structural or fundamental. It's a great question. And I wanna say, first of all, that I'm so proud of the 
people that I work with every day in Stanford Medicine, the healthcare workers on the front line, the researchers that are thinking about and doing the transformative research that will ultimately enable us to conquer this virus. Uh, it's an amazing group of people and I'm, I'm privileged to be associated with them. There are a number of changes in the way healthcare is delivered, the way medicine is practiced that are going to occur coming out of this crisis. You know, during the month of February, we did about a thousand virtual visits in our Stanford Healthcare adult healthcare delivery system. One day a week now, we do more than 3,000. So an almost 50-fold increase in the number of virtual visits from February to today. And thanks to our amazing IT team that's enabled us to scale up in that way. Similarly, on the children's side as well, we've seen a massive increase in virtual visits. What we're discovering as physicians, as healthcare providers, is that we can do a lot more through a virtual visit than we thought we could in the past. And yet, I'm also sure that we're only scratching the surface now. The revolution in digital health, which had begun long before COVID-19, I think the impact of that revolution is going to increase and become more meaningful now. Whereas you and I can have a virtual visit, can have a conversation like we're doing today, wouldn't it be great if we could also interface into that a blood pressure measurement, uh, a measurement of glucose, a variety of other things that we have the technology needed to roll that out and do it, but we haven't had really the driving force that would lead to those sorts of changes. Well, the world has changed and we're going to, and I think it's gonna be a good transformation in healthcare delivery uh, to see more and more done in the virtual environment. And yes, of course, some people are gonna to need to come in, but by doing more virtually, it's going to open up more opportunities for person-to-person -person care, for, for in-person care. Whereas there might've been a long waiting period before, now I think the waiting period for those types of on-site visits are gonna be shorter because we're more effective in the virtual realm. That the telehealth transformation is going to be rapidly accelerated by this pandemic. And I think it's overall, it will be a very good thing for healthcare and healthcare delivery. Super, uh, that's so interesting to hear you say that. It makes complete sense to me that, uh, that education and health uh, both will uh, both will change uh, dramatically. Um, Lloyd, finally, um, any interesting transformations for you personally in in the midst of this difficult time? What, what what were you reading, listening, eating before this, and what if anything has this changed about about Lloyd Miner? Well, I don't go to the gym now because the gym is closed, but I still try to get exercised every day. Uh, my job prior to COVID nineteen involved something almost every evening. Uh, interacting with uh, the wonderful people who support Stanford Medicine, uh, honoring our faculty. Of course, those events aren't occurring. Uh, so um, my evenings now uh, actually have dinner at home every evening, which is nice uh, for my wife and me. Um, and then I'm able to, to get, get some more work done at home. I uh, Just prior to this pandemic, in fact, you and I spoke about it uh, a few months ago. I wrote a book on our vision for precision health. It was launched a few weeks ago, not too much fanfare because needless to say, all the focus is on COVID-19. But um, 
I think there are several messages in that book that are very applicable to the transformation that we're seeing uh, coming about from uh, COVID-19. I still um, very much enjoy my interactions and get a lot of resilience, my personal resilience, from the colleagues with whom I have the privilege of working every day and from this amazing ecosystem that we live in here in the Valley, uh, being the healthcare delivery system and also interacting with technology leaders and others that are very much focused on the effects of this pandemic on their workforce, but also on what they as technology companies can do uh, to conquering the pandemic. Uh, and finally, and very importantly, it's brought institutions together in ways that perhaps we hadn't come together in the past as much as we could have. I'm really pleased that we're collaborating with UCSF on a study of epidemiology and, and serology, that is antibody response in the Bay Area. It's a wonderful collaboration, two great institutions very close to each other, and, uh, and we're working together on this, and I think that will be the beginnings of many, many future collaborations, as well as collaborations with the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. All, and, and, and you know, boy, that's actually a very interesting point. I wonder if that actually will also end up being one of the legacies of this. The groups, be it government and philanthropy, be it, be it philanthropy and business, be it business and what have you, probably who didn't collaborate quite as deeply before, probably had, you know, intensely were thrown together. I mean, I'm, I suspect you probably have engaged more with the governor's office over the last six weeks and probably in the prior six months, maybe even in the prior six years, I don't know. Um, is, that, is that right? And, and, and are there kind of new, uh, new collaborations that, that, that you think will persist even after this? Yes, definitely. And I think we can look back to uh, the early days of the HIV epidemic. You know, when I was training, we were seeing patients that we didn't know the cause of these unusual tumors like Kaposi sarcomas and these diseases that progress so rapidly uh, to uh, making people incredibly ill and then ultimately dying. That was what was then shown to be HIV. And in my lifetime, we've transformed HIV from being a virtually 100% fatal diagnosis to now being a successfully managed chronic disease in the vast majority of cases. That took collaborations between academic institutions, the government, uh, big pharma, all working together to develop the antiretroviral therapies that we now use in a commonplace way. I think SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 will require and will, will, we will see the same sorts of interactions and collaborations. And that's why I'm hopeful, very hopeful, uh, that ultimately will come conquer this virus just as we've conquered other public health challenges. Um, a quick question back on that antibody that you said you were working on. How close is that to being ready and will it have any impact on our ability to open back up? Antibody testing is important because it enables us to determine who has been exposed to or infected with the virus. And that gives us an idea of the prevalence of the virus in, in communities. The presence of an antibody response does not in and of itself mean that the person is immune to reinfection. That requires a separate set of studies that are also ongoing. A determination of how 
broadly there is an antibody response in in a group of people in a community is one piece of information that will be important to policymakers to know when the um, shelter in place and social distancing guidelines can be relaxed. We are we we developed uh, an antibody test here. Other institutions have as well. Uh, we're we'll be collaborating with other institutions as we roll out this test more broadly to look at the prevalence of an antibody response in the Bay Area and then in other areas as well.